morning's lesson is from Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. The word of the Lord. I'll invite you to stand as James reads for us the gospel reading. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a husband, but of God, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. we uh, remain standing, please uh, pray with me. Father, we ask uh, your Holy Spirit to bear witness to us that we are indeed children, your children, and heirs of the new creation. May we then live in and live out of our baptism for the sake of your kingdom in this world. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it's been over two years since we celebrated baptism in their fullness with everyone in this place. So I'm quite excited that we can do so once again, what we could consider to be a historic occasion for our church uh, after a very, very long time apart. Now, baptism means a lot of things in the Bible. And during the few limited uh, baptisms that we had over the past two years, we first looked at baptism as an event that marked our death, the death of our former selves, our death to the life of sin. And then secondly, we looked at the second thing, we looked at baptism as an event of a new exodus, that is a escaping from sin in our ongoing journey to the promised land, so to speak, to the new creation. And we looked at the third thing about baptism, it's union with Jesus, that's our oneness, our solidarity with him who is now alive and ruling in heaven. And not just up there when I say heaven, but here, heaven in our midst, heaven inside of you, heaven beside you, heaven all around us, earth as it is in heaven. And then today we'll be looking at the fourth perspective of baptism. Baptism as adoption. Baptism as adoption. 
In its legal sense, adoption is the process of taking someone into your care and custody, usually children or youth who are without parents or whose parents are unable to care for them. Now, very few of us here may have gone through the adoption process for your own family. And that would have been an incredibly beautiful, but also can be brutal process of waiting for a long time. Right? The, the emotional toll that you had to carry, the financial costs that you had to bear, before you could finally welcome your child, your youth, into your home. That adoption process, it's, it's not easy. It's not always easy. And in a real and greater sense, God himself, God himself had to go through an incredibly beautiful and brutal process in order to legally adopt his church, legally adopt Christians. It's a community of adopted people from across space and time to be welcomed home into God's divine self, to be brought into his own divine family, as it were, into his heart, into his own, as it were, Trinitarian family. That process involved the unimaginable cost of the death of God's own legitimate son on the cross and his rising to life. Those were the events we just celebrated last week. Baptism signifies that great love, that great length that God came towards us, bestowed upon us by adopting us as his own. Now, when I was in undergrad, I, I immersed myself into reading and studying Reformed theology, which then shaped my convictions around the gospel even today. So at the time, the cross uh, became central in my purview of Christianity. I became all about championing and defending the doctrine of the justification by faith. That's the teaching that people can only be reconciled to God by believing or trusting in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. To me, the, that doctrine of justification by faith, that's the bedrock of the Christian faith. That's it. It's where you land. Until I read the classic book that was titled Knowing God. It was written by the late Anglican scholar and priest James Inel Packer. I remember reading a chapter near the end of his book, which to this day felt like a visceral moment of clarity for me like a turning point in my understanding of the Christian faith. See, when I read it, it was like a fog had just suddenly lifted up before me. And, and then behold, it, in front of me, it was just suddenly the view of the Grand Canyon. It was so clear. And then it was, it was more than what my two eyes could even take in. See, there was one line in the book that did that for me. Packer wrote this. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even that of justification. To be right with God as judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God as Father is a greater thing. It was one thing for God to forgive us, to withhold from us His holy indignation, His justice we deserved because of our sins, but it was another for God to adopt us as His own, for us to be called and named children. Love no differently as he now loves his only begotten son. Think about that. God loves you the way he loves his perfect eternal son. Right now. As he had done in eternity past. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers us. 
to be called and named sons and daughters of God. Baptism signifies that highest privilege. As we've read from our first reading in Romans, we will see that our adoption in Jesus, we're just going to be looking at two things here, it changes two things about us. First, it changes our identity, and then secondly, it changes our destiny. Adoption in Jesus changes our identity, and then changes our destiny. So I invite us to turn in your Bibles or in your mobile apps, or you could grab a pew Bible in front of you, and it's on uh, Romans chapter 8. So first, adoption changes our identity. Look at verse 14. The, uh, the Apostle Paul identifies Christians as sons of God. It's in the masculine. Uh, there's a reason for that. See, Paul was writing this in his social context of ancient Rome when it was customary for the eldest male descendant to inherit the family estate. See, the eldest son literally carried in him, in his body, and with him the future of the family name and its wealth. Now, it was no different back then as it is today that not every couple could have children. So when the family patriarch did not and could not have a son, he could opt to go through the adoption process, which was at, at the time was an incredibly inc- exclusive privilege. Only patricians or the upper high class, the noble class could do and afford. See, the most famous example that we have of Roman adoption was when Julius Caesar, when he could not have a son of his own, he adopted his great nephew, uh, Octavian, who then became the first Roman emperor, and then he renamed himself Caesar Augustus, and he ascended to power. So when the patriarch adopted someone, usually a male old enough uh, in his youth or young adulthood, the boy or the young man legally became the son of the family, becoming now the sole heir to the family name and estate. Paul carries this custom over as an analogy to illustrate what actually happens to people, to to us, when God brings us to himself. The one key difference between that Roman custom and the Christian understanding is that everyone, anyone, not just male, not just a son, not just the upper class, can become an inheritor of God's holy name and God's holy estate. Now, that was revolutionary at the time, right? And for for over 2,000 years, baptism is the act of renaming the person being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name of God, his Trinitarian family name, his surname, as it were, is conferred to the baptized, and their identity is changed. Identities change. Oh yeah, so far that's, that's all just legal, ceremonial, religious jargon. Right? Well, what does that even mean on the ground? What happens exactly on the practical level when we're adopted in baptism? Well, Paul spells it out further in verse 15. See, like whenever, whenever we say or speak about bapt- uh, adoption, we usually imagine that the original circumstance of the person being adopted was that they were, we, we would assume to be orphaned or that they were abandoned 
or that their parents were unable to raise them. That's what we would just assume immediately. But notice in verse 15, Paul described the former original circumstance that we find ourselves in, not as being orphaned, not as being abandoned, not as being impoverished, but as being in slavery, in slavery in verse 15. Paul was indicating that our adoption by God came originally by God's responding, his response, his initiative to rescue us from our former and original circumstance of being enslaved, especially being enslaved to fear. <laughs> what was what's Paul saying? In the 2009 Academy Award-winning biopic film titled The Blind Side, it was based on the true story of former NFL player Michael Oher, it, it dramatized the story between Michael and his adoptive parents, Sean and Leanne Tuhi. At the age of seven, Michael was in and out of foster homes, and he experienced periods of homelessness. His mom suffered alcoholism and drug addiction. His dad was frequently in jail and then tragically was mur murdered while in prison when Michael was in his senior years in high school. Michael was then introduced to the Tuhi family because of the initiative and the kindness of the youngest son, Sean Jr., or SJ for short. It wasn't long then that Michael was brought into their home by their generosity and kindness. And there was a moment in the film when the Tuhi family was about to gather and have their Thanksgiving dinner. Michael had not long been boarding in the Tuhi residence at this point. As everyone was helping themselves with this buffet of decadent Thanksgiving food, Michael was sheepish about it all. He, he wasn't sure of what to do. So he just takes a dinner roll and he hides it in his pant pocket. And, and everyone else just dashed to the living room. They turned on the TV. They were going to watch football together. And Michael went away by himself in the dining room. And he sat alone in the dining room table, took out his dinner roll and started eating the bread. Now, despite having been welcomed as family into his new home, despite the generous provision shown to him beyond what he could even understand and comprehend, Michael yet wallowed in this complex of his traumatic childhood, his rough upbringing. He could not bring himself to enjoy, to delight, to be present with others, to be known, to, to risk being known to know others and to be loved and then to love in return. In a real sense, you could say that Michael lived in fear. He was enslaved to fear, to his traumatic past. He was numbed by the disappointments and disillusionments that that's all he's, he's ever known of his life. Even though, even though he now lived in a safe and loving and warm and generous home. And as Christians... We are adopted by God from out of that life of fear, out of slavery to fear, from the cruelty of our former taskmasters who had mastery and oppression over us of sin and death. But despite our being baptized, being adopted by God, we still carry in our hearts, in our minds, in, in our bodies, these scars, these wounds, the trauma of our former lives, and we from time to time will relapse this life and pattern of, of fear, of, of debilitating anxiety, as though we were not cared for, 
of sin to slavery. And we're, even though we can say that we're forgiven, even though we're, we feel like we can say we're loved, that's what the Bible says, but I don't feel that. Even though we bear the name of God on our heads in baptism, we still fall back into living a life enslaved to fear. But Paul continues in verse 15. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What's, what's Paul saying here? See, let's go back to that Thanksgiving dinner scene. The mom, played by Sandra Bullock, Leanne Tui, she saw Michael sitting alone at the dinner room table. She picks up the remote control, shuts off the TV. She gathers all that food to the dining room table. And then she invites everyone of her family to sit together for Thanksgiving for the first time, as it were, together, seated with fine china and cutlery. Before they ate, Leanne invited everyone to pray. Each family member reached for each other's hands. And the son and daughter reached for Michael's hands. And then Michael was no longer alone. He was praying. He was eating, dining with his family for Thanksgiving. See, the Holy Spirit does something similar and even greater inside of us. And in fact, among all of us, because we need each other in this in this work of the Holy Spirit. He does not leave us feeling alone, feeling afraid, feeling trapped and empty, feeling abandoned and hopeless. The Holy Spirit brings to us, as it were, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to hold our closed fists when it's shaking in anger and desperation. He brings to us, around us, the company of saints in fellowship, in the prayers of our family and friends, the prayers of the church, as we say in the collects, the Book of Common Prayer, the prayers of Jesus himself in ceaseless intercession even now in heaven, pleading for each one of us by name. And then the Holy Spirit brings us to that table, to the feast of Christ's body that was broken for our life and nourishment. The Spirit himself sits and dines with us so that we are never alone. And by him we can then cry out, Abba, Father. To feel again, to comprehend and apprehend again that we belong to this great cloud, this great family of God's adopted. And you what we have We have a father in heaven who so happens to be God. We're loved. We are forgiven. We are adored. We are cared and supported. God gives to us so generously. You don't ever have to sit alone in fear. You have one family, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Our adoption changes our identity. Secondly, our adoption changes our destiny. In verse 17, Paul says that since we're God's children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, according to Paul, our destiny is glory. It's glory. It's, it's, a hu- it's a huge category, but what he means here is the future, the final, and perfected form of not only our physical bodies, uh, the way it is right now of, of Jesus Christ resurrected in heaven, but it's the final and 
future and perfected form of the universe itself. And the whole earth will be made new again. That's our destiny. That's what we're inheriting, as it were. A new body and a new world. That's the Christian future. All right, so that's, that's our destiny. So we could just sit back, relax. Let's just let God do everything else. He'll do the whole thing. We, we just relegate ourselves to passivity. We're just inheriting this big, big, big sort of inheritance. We just have to sit back. We don't have to do anything. That's not, that's not what Paul is suggesting here. Because you would have noticed in the same verse, in verse 17, Paul makes this caveat. We're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The road to that destiny is none other than Via Dolorosa. The path to Golgotha, the uphill climb to the place of the skull towards the cross. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he had to go up to that hill in the first place. See, if only the true and begotten Son of God himself suffered this path of suffering, we who are adopted in his name are to likewise go through the same path. Okay, so what did Paul mean that we must suffer in, with Christ in order to then reach that destiny of glory? Now, this is not part of our reading, uh, but it's further into the chapter 8. He elaborates in verse 22. This is, just bear with me here. He, Paul personifies or anthropomorphizes the physical universe as it were, or all of creation like a mother giving birth, going through the labor pangs. And then Paul goes even further in verse 26 here, like talking about now here the Holy Spirit groaning along with us, like when we don't have words to pray. So this is what Paul is doing. He's, picture, he's painting this picture. Of, imagine the Holy Spirit alongside the whole world, the universe, and Christians together groaning, screaming, howling, heaving as though in labored breath. It's a visceral image of creation like a mother laboring in birth and the Holy Spirit before her like a midwife. It's a very odd image. I mean, what do we make of this? I mean, as strange as the image is to us right now as Western Christians, during the Middle Ages, the medieval Christians, they took that image even further and painted a number of illuminated art pieces and compiled them into this devotional prayer book called the Book of Hours. Hours as in minutes and hours. And some of these paintings, they depicted the crucified Jesus. And out of the wound in his right side where he was pierced with the Roman spear, you could see a grown woman depicted emerging from the wound. And then to the side, God the Father standing, ready to catch her like a midwife, bringing out the bride of Christ, the church, from out of Christ's suffering, from out of Christ's wound. It's an astonishing image. For the medieval Christians, they reflected upon the sufferings of Jesus on the cross when he, according to John, bled out water and blood from out of his side as though giving literal birth to a new family, to a new world, to a new creation, the same way God brought out Eve out of the side of Adam in Genesis. Although that wasn't, we couldn't say that Paul was thinking of that exactly. Paul is at least suggesting here that because of the cross, because of Jesus' suffering, 
suffering and death themselves have been infused with ultimate meaning. Death and suffering, they don't have the last word. They don't define what suffering and pain is anymore. They don't, they don't say that. Jesus says something different. Suffering has been given a trajectory. It's become a tool in the hands of God. Death has been given this ironic power of life. Like when you put a seed and bury it in the ground, it, it dies and then there comes fruit. Because of the events we commemorated last week, Good Friday and Easter, Jesus infused human suffering and death with meaning and goal, just like the sufferings of a mother laboring to give life into the world. Though the agony of birth is incomparable to anything else, the suffering has ultimate meaning, has a goal, has a destiny. It's the glory of a new birth, of new life, of new creation. This is a human being brought into this world completely new, entirely unique, like no other, and won't ever be again in all of time. The world is forever changed because of this baby. It's a literal new creation in this broken world. Something new. The world has never seen this before. In the same way, our path to the destiny of glory, it's marked with meaningful suffering. Now, when I say meaningful suffering, I'm not suggesting that I have the single clue or the secret code to, to render meaning to suffering. I, I can't do that. We, we can't do that. That's pretty much all of our lives. We're trying to figure out why this pain, why this suffering, why this evil in our lives, in this world. Somehow, we must believe it to be the case because we know even by experience that certain kinds of suffering do have incredible meaning. Though we cannot yet see the fruit, the outcome of it all, we don't know the end of the story. You may bear the agony of waiting with unanswered prayers. There are politicians who are fighting for decades to pass a bill of fairness and justice in the city. There are nurses and doctors who are at their wits' end or desperately just trying to keep everyone alive. Even in the, in the midst of this pandemic, farmers whose crops were suddenly destroyed by unseasonal frost. There are hearts that have been broken many times in search for true and lasting love. There is now the senseless loss of lives and children because of the whims of a dictator. These are the groans of our world. Our groans, they're beyond human words. But somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit of God bears them all up. He makes meaning and sense out of them, though we cannot comprehend it. Just as he made everything out of nothing, just as he made order out of chaos, just as he made eternal life out of death. In Jesus, our suffering has meaning, has a goal, has a destiny, like the labor pangs of the new creation. This too is ours by baptism, by our adoption. Adoption changes our identity. Adoption changes our destiny. If you're a baptized Christian, you don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to live in slavery to your to your debilitating worries, your anxieties. 
you are forgiven, you are loved, you have a family, you have a future and an imperishable inheritance in Jesus. Most importantly, you have a father who loves you and gives to you whatever you ask in the name of his son. If you're a baptized Christian, your suffering has ultimate meaning, even as you are now working and laboring and sweating and toiling and praying for the new creation in your own life, in your own body, in your own family, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your career. Your destiny is the complete renewal, not only of the body and the perfection of everything. That's what we're laboring for. That's why we can be faithful to that resurrection hope. Let's then live into our baptism, live out of our adoption as God's children, to the glory of God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.